You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. Okay, are y'all ready for the word tonight? Because I didn't come up here to just give you a bunch of announcements. I came here to preach a word to you guys. So if you're ready, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go. go. We love us some Hebrews chapter 12. Get out your being transformed journal if you've got it. Get your phone out. Whatever you need to do to get the most out of this message tonight, I want to strongly encourage you to do it because tonight we're wrapping up a four-week series we've been in called Growing Pains, and I hope you've been enjoying this series. Um, And my prayer has been for this whole time that all of us would have a renewed mind and that our view of pain would be reshaped through this series because we live in a world and really we live in a body that does not like to experience pain. Would you agree with me? Does anybody in here just like love feeling pain? No, nobody, no, nobody loves feeling pain. In fact, we live in a world, we live in a world that says, hey, you need to find the easiest, the quickest, and the least uncomfortable path to success. But the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter five, which is, we don't have power verses here, like in kids ministry, but if we did have a power verse, it would be Romans chapter five for this series. Our power verse in Romans chapter five, Paul hits us with this command as believers, and here's what it is. It's not that as believers, we're just supposed to walk through life knowing that pain is gonna come and expecting it and being ready for it, No, no, no. In in Romans chapter 5, Paul raises the bar, and he says, I don't want you to just expect pain, but I want you to rejoice when pain comes at the door of your life. Somebody say rejoice. Rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but why would I rejoice when I experience something that hurts? Why would my first response be to get stoked and to praise God when I'm going through something uncomfortable that doesn't make sense? Because sometimes in the moment, when we're in the middle of that pain, it makes no sense to respond with this kind of response that Paul is telling us to do, to rejoice. You know, about a month ago, I was working out. I was putting away my barbell, and I dropped my 45-pound barbell on the face of my iPhone. Just, and just completely shattered my iPhone. And I know I'm your youth pastor and all, but I'm just going to be honest with you. My first response wasn't like, wow, praise God. I cannot wait to see how God turns this around for my good. Rejoice. Like, like that wasn't my first response. And so why are we deciding to learn in this series that we should respond to, I know that's a little first world problem, but it's still an inconvenience, right? So why should we learn to rejoice in something like that? Well, in week one, if you remember, we looked at the fact that if you wanna see gains in your life, in any aspect of your life, I'm talking physical gains. If you wanna see physical gains, then you've gotta go through some pain, right? If you wanna see spiritual gains, you wanna learn how to love God more, you wanna love his word more, maybe you wanna learn how to pray powerful prayers or you wanna hear God's voice more clearly, Or if you want your relationships to be healthier, you want to see gains in your relationships, it doesn't matter what aspect of life that we're walking in, if we want to see gains, somebody say gains, that's a fun word, 
If you want to see gains in that area of your life, then the reality is we preached about it in week one. No pain, no gain, right? No pain, no gain. But here's the, uh, here's the really amazing news. This is why we can rejoice. Paul encourages us in Romans 5 that pain is never pointless with God. No pain that we ever experience is ever pointless, worthless. God uses every single pain. Somebody say every pain. God uses every pain to grow us. And so this is why we can rejoice. This is why when I experience something that is kind of uncomfortable or maybe an inconvenience to my life, I can literally say, man, right now, this is really uncomfortable. But I'm going to choose to rejoice because I know God's got something better on the other side. And this is why we can rejoice. You know, when I shattered my iPhone, in the moment, my initial reaction wasn't to rejoice. I wasn't praising God when I looked down and saw that I was going to have to spend $300 to fix a dumb phone. That wasn't my first response. But can I tell you, my God, he works all things, even little things, together for the good of those who love him. And so, you know... I actually gained something from shattering my iPhone, as silly as it sounds. And you know what I gained? I gained time. I gained uninterrupted, quiet, focused, intentional time with with God, with my family, with my girls that honestly, I might have spent scrolling on Instagram or scrolling on YouTube. And so in this way, I didn't know in the moment, but I actually could have rejoiced when that happened. Does that make sense? And this is why no matter what we experience, we can learn to rejoice. And I'm not saying like you guys should go home and like stomp on your phones because Instagram is bad. And that's not what I'm saying because I got my phone screen fixed and it's been really nice. (laughs) It's been really nice. But what I am saying is no matter how big or how small the inconvenience is, I'm telling you, we can rejoice because God works all things. Somebody say all things. All things things together for the good of those who love him. So we talked about in week one, no pain, no gain. And then in the last two weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at some specific pains that we're actually called to walk through and walk in as believers. Two weeks ago, we looked at um, the pain of confession. Eric did an incredible job with that word. And last week, we looked at the pain of secrecy. And I loved how these two weeks played out because it showed us, it painted this beautiful picture of the upside down opposite way that God's kingdom runs. Because if you remember, we looked at the fact that we are called to bring to light as believers the worst parts of us to somebody we trust through confession. And we're called to not display our good works through this thing called humility. Isn't that crazy? how opposite God's kingdom works. But when we learn to walk in this kind of maturity and this kind of pain, God grows us into look an image like Jesus. So tonight, I wanna talk about uh, what all of this pain is for. I wanna talk about what all this pain is for because we've talked about at the first week that there's gonna be pain. So we addressed that fact. And then the last two weeks, we looked at, looked at some specific pains, but why? What's the point of all of this pain and why can we rejoice because knowing that God with God there's nothing pointless about our pain and so the whole point is this scripture talks about this all the time this thing that we as believers are called to step into and it's called the race somebody say the race the race race. 
And we actually see this in Hebrews chapter 12, which is our scripture for tonight. So I want you to turn with me there. And if you're taking notes, the title of the message is this, The Pain of the Race. The Pain of the Race. I've got a chunky passage for you. So are you all ready for this? We're going to read some Bible here tonight. But first, I need to drink some water or I'm going to lose my voice. So one second. That's right. Okay. Hebrews chapter 12. Y'all ready? Verse one, look at this. It says this. You're probably familiar with this passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Somebody say every weight. Every weight weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race. This is what we're talking about tonight. The race that is set before us. How do we do this? Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he had a race to run and he endured it. And look at this, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I wanna skip down to verse seven. It says this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Okay, this word discipline, some other translations use the word chastisement. So that's like a harsh word, right? When I think of that word discipline or chastisement, I just think of like, like a backhand, like push. It's like a harsh word. But what I want you to know is this is not like God saying, I'm gonna discipline you by like spanking the snot out of you. That's not what he's talking about. This is a Greek word that actually means to train up or to coach. Does that make sense? It's like a father who intentionally knows you and he wants to train you up and to coach you. So this is the, dip, the discipline of the Lord. Verse eight, if you are left without discipline in, in which all have participated, then you, will, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Who wants to be a son or a daughter of God? Hopefully all of you. So we've got to go through this thing called discipline. Look at this. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, talking about God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the dis- This is the whole series right here summed up in one verse. Look at this, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Amen? That's a good word. That's a good word. So before we get into this and dive into this and examine what Paul or the the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit in to speak to us tonight. Amen? So Father God, I thank you so much for my new song, Students Family. And I thank you, just like Maddie said, God, that your word, it stands eternal. God, that one day we will all wither away like the grass of the field and we'll be with you in heaven. But Lord, your word is forever. And so God, as we open up your word tonight, as we close out this series on figuring out how to walk in maturity in Christ, I pray that your word by my lips would come to life. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room and I pray that every heart 
every mind would be softened, would be open to your word, and that you would do what Jesus talks about in the parable, that you would plant seeds of faith in every single heart tonight. And like the song said, that we would grow and see that faith grow and see that faith grow. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, so we're currently going through a book together as a staff here at New Song Students. The book is called The Burden is Light. It's by a guy named John Tyson. You've probably heard me quote him before a couple times, but I wanted to read to you a section of this book because in the first chapter, he introduces this concept that I love. He calls it the dash, okay? You ready to figure out what the dash is? So in chapter one, he he opens up this story uh, about a conversation that he has between him and his teenage son. And it's not just like your normal everyday conversation. It's like one of those intentional, like deep, I'm discipling you conversations. You know what I'm saying? So he's having this conversation with his son, but it's in a cemetery, okay? (laughs) So like not your typical place to have a discipleship conversation, right? Like I hope that when you're trying to hang out with your small group leader outside of students, and you're trying to get them to mentor you, and you're texting them, and your leader's like, hey, are you good for lunch this Saturday? And you're like, yeah, I'm good for lunch this Saturday. And they're like, okay, cool. Do you like pizza? You're like, yeah, dude, I love pizza. And your leader's like, cool. I'll pick us up some pizza. How about you meet me at Memorial Park Cemetery at noon? How many of you would text them back, and you'd be like, ah, oh, dude, I forgot. I'm actually busy It's Saturday at noon. Like, sorry. Yeah, I got COVID, <laughs> even though it's not a thing anymore. I'm just kidding. How many of you would be like, dude, I'm not meeting you at a cemetery, right? This is not your typical place for a discipleship conversation. At least I hope it's not a typical place for you. If it is, we'll pray for you after service. But in this moment, uh, John Tyson is asking his son some questions. And I want to read to you their conversation. So I got my rabbit ear over here, my dog ear. Here we go. You all ready for this? He says this. He's talking to his son. He says, what did you see? I asked. Some of these people died really young, younger than me, he replied. What else? Some husbands and wives were buried next to each other, but one died before the other. I wonder if they got lonely. What else, I asked, pleased at his growing awareness. Some of them were from the 1800s, which was an eternity ago. I wonder what life was like for them. John Tyson says, I wasn't working towards some sort of dead poet society, good movie by the way, dead poet society moment, and I wasn't trying to get him to understand the fact that in what seemed like an eternity for him, but was a breath of air in the light of true eternity, he would be dead. I was working for something simpler, yet infinitely more challenging. Okay, so this is John talking to his son. Here's what he says. The thing you will notice about all these people, I said, is that their tombstone contains two dates. There is a date for their birth, and there is a date for their death, and a tiny dash between them. The whole of your life on earth is going to come down to that tiny little dash. Then I pressed him a bit further, and I said, Nate, what will your dash be? Okay, I know we're starting off kind of heavy tonight, but I love this question. What will your dash be? New Song students, let's think about it tonight. What is your dash 
your one shot at life going to be? Because the reality is we do have just one life. We're only given one life from God, one dash in the span of eternity. And the way we spend that dash actually really matters. And the reality is some people waste that one single dash that we get. William Irving says this, there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all of your activity, despite all of the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuine or valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. Whew, man, Pastor Jackson is really encouraging me tonight. <laughs> like, my faith is built tonight. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, so trust me. Like, I'm going somewhere with this. But we really, we really need to get, we, we need to grasp this, that our whole life at one point is going to come down to a dash on a tombstone. We've got one single life. And I promise you, nobody is intending to live their life in a way that when they get to their deathbed, they're like, cool, I wasted my one dash. Like, nobody wants to get to that point, but... It happens. It happens. But here's the good news. I got some good news, okay? So you can take a deep breath now. <sighs> okay. I know that was heavy. But here's the good news. Jesus came that he may give us life. And not just like an average life, not just life like where you survive. Jesus says that I came that you may have life and have life abundantly. Abundantly. Jesus offers you and I a way of life that is going to include some pain it's gonna include some events that we didn't necessarily want to find ourselves in, but he offers us a life where at the end of our life, we can say, yeah, that was the best life I could have possibly ever lived. This is the life Jesus offers us. And so how are we supposed to view this life in a way where we, we maximize our one single dash that we're, we're given? Well, the way we're supposed to view our life, according to scripture, is like a race. Look at this. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also run and lay aside every weight and sin which, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race. Somebody say the race. The race that God has set before us. New Song students, God has a race for you to run. Write that down. God has a race for me. He's got a race for you to run. Scripture talks a lot about our life being this picture of a runner running a race. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 9 says this. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Well, duh. Thank you, Paul. Oh, but wait, look at this. He says, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone competes in the games, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I love this, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. So Paul talks about this race, and he says, hey, don't just run this race like you're jogging on a Saturday morning. 
you want to run this dash, this life that God's given you, like you want to win. Because God's called you to run in a way that you win. But look at this, Galatians 5, 7. This is another part of scripture where it talks about the race. And, and Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and they have stopped running their race well. And look at this. He says, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 2 Timothy 4, 7. This is another time it talks about the race, but this is Paul talking about himself. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So scripture talks a lot about this picture of you and I being runners in the middle of a race. Now, I've got a question for you guys. Has anybody ever run a marathon before? You've run a marathon before? What? I know Ashley has. Ashley's a beast. Some of y'all, I don't know about you, but I've never, <laughs> I've never run a marathon before, um, and honestly, I don't ever plan to. Because, like, I like working out, but running 26 miles sounds just awful. I think that's what people do in hell. I'm not really sure. But if I were, if I were to run a marathon one day, if you were to run a marathon one day, how many of you would want to know ahead of time? Yes. You would want to know ahead of time. Why? Because a marathon is a huge commitment, right? It's a huge commitment. Can you imagine if... One of your best friends was like, hey, you want to go to the OKC Memorial Marathon with me? And you don't ask any other questions. You're like, yeah, dude, I would love to. I've never been. That sounds really fun. And so it's the morning of the marathon, and you wake up, and you put your clothes on, and you go get some Starbucks or Dutch Bros or whatever coffee you like, and you show up to the marathon. <laughs> you show up to the marathon. You've got your Crocs on or your, your slides or your dunks. I don't know what you wear. But you show up in whatever you wear, and uh, your friend who invited you to the marathon, they come running up to you, and they've got this number plastered to their shirt, and you look down at their shoes, and they've got these like sweet hokas on, these running shoes, and they look at you, and, and they're like, you, you plan on running this marathon in those Crocs? And you're like, oh, no, no, I, I'm not running the marathon, I just came to watch. How many, of you, how many of your hearts would just sink in that moment? And your friend is like, oh, dude, it's good. I've got some extra shoes in the back. I'll go get them for you. And you're like, uh, no, I don't want to do that. How many of you know? If you did not know you were signing up for a marathon, but you showed up and you were like, oh, I'm running this thing, how many of you would be scared out of your mind? I'm telling you, here's, here's why I say all that. I say that to say this. I see a lot of people doing this in their walk spiritually with God. I see this happen a lot, New Song students. I don't want you to find yourself at the start of a marathon thinking you're showing up just to be a witness, just to observe. You know, when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, you are not signing up to watch a race. Listen to me. You are signing up to run a race. When you give your life to Jesus, this is not the end of your race. You raising your hand and saying, God, I, love you. I, give you the Lord of, I make you the Lord of my life. I give you my life. When you do that, you have just signed up for the marathon, and you're about to take your very first step. And this is the danger of misliving that we face in our life. All of us, we face this. You and I, listen to me, we're misliving. We're wasting our dash when we are showing up to the race that God has called us to run expecting to just be an observer. Wow. 
The abundant life, I want you to know this, the, the abundant life that God has for you is not including you being an observer watching me run my race. You're not called to observe and watch your leaders run their race. You're not called to watch us and get inspired and like, man, that was a really good talk, but not train for your race. The abundant life God has called you to is not to watch the race. You signed up, if you gave your life to Jesus, to run a race. You are at the very start of a marathon, and I hope you have your shoes ready <laughs> because it is a long run. In fact, you're going to be running this to the day you die. Because you remember that great cloud of witnesses that that verse talked about? That's the people who have already run their race. So that's, you're not the great cloud of witnesses. You're the one running the race. Somebody say, I'm running. I'm running. And so if I'm planning on running a marathon, I don't just show up the day of a marathon with nothing like preparing me for it. I want to know ahead of time because something like that, that kind of race, it requires some training. Write this down. God's race for me requires training. God's race for you requires training. What is training? I looked up the definition. Here's what the definition is. Training is the process of undertaking a course of exercise and diet. Ooh, we like exercise, but not diet as much because pizza is awesome. Exercise and diet, but it's not just for the sake of exercising and diet. It's in preparation for a sporting event. So when we enter into a life with Christ, we are called to step into this life looking like a professional athlete. But I see a lot of Christians looking a lot more like fans than they do a professional athlete. Like we've got the jersey. We never, we've got season passes to our favorite team. We shout real loud at the game. But like when we leave the event, like our life looks nothing like that of a professional athlete. And New Song students, when you take an honest look at your walk with God. I'm not trying to make you feel, but I just want, I want us all to do this. I've been doing this this week. When you take an honest look at your life and your walk with Jesus, this race that you're running with him, would you say you look more like a fan observing a race or does your life look like that of a professional athlete? Training. Do you show up to every single service? You do everything here at, or, or, you serve on every team, you, you mosh up here at the worship and you sing real loud, and you go for altar ministry, but when you leave this room, nothing else happens. Because if that's you, I'm, I'm tr I promise you, I love you. I am not trying to make you feel bad, because I've been there before. But I'm saying all this to say, God hasn't called you to do that. And you're misliving. The best life God has for you is not that of somebody watching. It's that of somebody running. So how exactly do we train for this race that we're called to? Well, it actually looks a lot like what you would do if you were training for something physical. You, you do something like exercise and diets. What that looks like spiritually is these things called spiritual disciplines. Now, we actually did an entire series called Real Life last year on spiritual disciplines. It was an incredible series, one of my favorite series we've ever done. So if you've missed it, I mean, honestly, if you've already heard it, go back and listen to it. Um, but in that series, we talked about spiritual disciplines, and there, if you remember with me, there's two types of spiritual disciplines that we discussed. There's disciplines of engagement, and there's disciplines of abstinence. Somebody say engagement, engagement. and somebody say abstinence. abstinence. So 
the spiritual disciplines that we talked about of engagement, that looks like the exercise part of your training, right? So it's like the, I'm stretching my muscles, I'm doing some uncomfortable things, but I'm doing it and my faith is getting bigger. So spiritually, that looks like things like serving. That looks like praying, like worshiping, like reading the word. Those are disciplines of engagement. But then we talked about the diet side of training. This is kind of like your spiritual disciplines of abstinence, right? And these are things where we, like, just like an athlete will abstain from certain foods. It might not even necessarily be a bad food, but they'll, they'll abstain from certain foods in order to get the best fuel for their body. In the same way, the spiritual disciplines of abstinence are things like fasting, purity, secrecy, and you do this because you're saying, this might be okay, but it's not fueling my spirit for the race God has called me to run. And so I'm gonna abstain from that so I can run what God has called me to do. Does that make sense? And so we talked about the spiritual disciplines uh, last year. Go back and listen to it. But all of those things are disciplines that you chose to do. They might be uncomfortable. They might be painful. But like you chose to do it, right? Because it's a discipline. But what about pain that you didn't choose to walk through? Like, what about when, when something happens to you and you didn't choose for that to happen? Like, this happens in life. You could live the healthiest life physically possible and still get hit with sickness. You could be the healthiest person ever and, and cancer could still hit your body. You could love somebody and trust somebody, serve them with the most pure intentions and them still turn around and betray you. Like we live in a light, we live in a world and we live in a fallen world where it doesn't matter how many good disciplines you implement in your life, they can't protect you from experiencing pain, right? So what do we do when, it's not just like I'm putting myself through spiritual disciplines to grow in my faith, put myself in pain, but what happens when those things happen? When I didn't choose to feel this way, I didn't choose for that to happen to me. Well, here's The amazing thing about our God, God says, and I've already said it, he works all things. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. And so this doesn't mean God puts us in painful situations. I want you to hear me. It doesn't mean God puts those things on you. He doesn't make people hurt you. But what he does have the power to do is to take those things and to turn them around for your good. It's kind of like this. Pastor Josh He used this analogy last year, and I loved it. And I'll use it with my daughter, Marlo. So my daughter, Marlo, she's getting pretty tall. She's getting close to, like, being able to put her hand on the top of a stove. And uh, so I need to start getting ready to teach her that the stove is hot, right? Because I don't want her to burn her hand. So what if I did this, though, to teach her that? What if I picked her up, and I turned on the stove, and I was like, all right, Marlo, this stove gets really hot. And I don't want you to touch it because you're going to burn yourself. But I'm going to make you feel what it feels like so that you really don't do it. So I take her cute, sweet little hand, and I just stick it on the stove. Okay, how many of you know that is not teaching Marlo? It is teaching Marlo the stove is hot, but you know what else is teaching? It's teaching her that dad is a psycho. (laughs) Dad is crazy and cannot be trusted, right? Listen to me. This is not what God does with us. God does not 
take us, pick us up, and throw us into painful situations in order to grow us. Do you hear me? That's not what God does. But he does take those things and he turns them around for our good. Look at this. James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true color. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in anything. This is why we rejoice, because our God uses pain. No pain is pointless with God. But here's where I want to get to tonight. God is not the only one trying to use your pain. We have an enemy, and he would love, just like God, God loves to turn our pain around for our good. You know what the enemy would love to do? He would love to take your pain and to get you to hold on to it and turn it around for something else. What he wants to do is God wants to take that pain and train you for something. He wants to train you for the race. The enemy, he wants to take your pain and he wants you to tempt you out of the race. Look at this. James 1, this is later in that chapter. It says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. So I want to look at these three things that God wants to train into us, every single one of us, through our pain. And I want to look at three things that are opposite of those things that God wants to put in us and the enemy wants to put in us to keep us from running our race. Because the enemy wants you to quit running this race, this dash that God has for you, this abundant life. But God, he says, I will use that pain if you'll trust me. So look at this. The three things God wants to train in us are in our power verse. I'm just gonna start calling it our power verse because maybe we need to start making that a thing here. I don't know. But look at this. These are the three things that God wants to train in us. Not only that, this is Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Okay, so look at this. If you're taking notes, write this down. God wants to train in us endurance, but the enemy wants to tempt us to comparison. Comparison. I think comparison is one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses to keep God's people from running their race. Because I love this quote, Theodore Roosevelt says, comparison is the thief of joy. It is the thief of joy. The enemy loves to bring comparison into our life through pain that we experience to get us focused on their race, focused on how they're running. Look at them. Man, they're so much stronger than me. They're so much faster than me. What's the point? I'm just going to stop running my race. So the enemy likes to make us feel through comparison that we're lesser than other people. Focus on what they're doing and how good they are. Look at how good they are. You might as well stop running your race. You're, you're wasting your time. It's pointless. So the enemy uses comparison to make us feel inferior. But you know what else comparison does? God, or The enemy can use pain to sow a seed of comparison to make us feel like we're superior to other people. And what does that do? That makes us feel like, look at me. I'm awesome. 
Look at how fast I'm running my race. Look at how slow all these other people are running their race. I guess I can just coast. You know what that does? Both of those views of comparison cause us to never see ourselves, our race, from a godly perspective. And the enemy uses this comparison to get us to either quit the race because they're running so much faster than me and they're doing so much better than me and look at them or to quit my race because, man, I'm doing so good. I don't even need to try anymore. Does this make sense? But the enemy wants to do this, but God wants to take our pain and he wants to train us for endurance. I love this definition for endurance. It's bearing hardship, but this is the best part. Endurance is staying power. That is a cool definition. Staying power. This is what God wants to train us in. Staying power. The power that says, man, this hurts, but I'm still going to keep running. This, this is the power that says, man, I didn't expect that to happen in my life, but I'm going to keep praying anyway. It's the power that says, man, I know what they said looks hopeless, but I'm not done running my race. It's staying power. And the enemy wants to tempt you to quit your race using comparison. But God says, I've got some staying power that I want to put in your race through pain. Second thing is this. Number two is this. God wants to train us for character. He wants to give us character in our race. But the enemy wants to tempt us for corruption. So listen to this. If the enemy, if he can't get you to quit your race by looking at other people and focusing on how they're running in their race and how awesome they are, he'll get you to run your race, but according to your rules and your standards. And this is not character. Look at this. Character is this. It's conduct that conforms to the accepted standards of right and wrong. But look at this. What is corruption? It's dishonesty. So what does this look like? Well, it's like this. God has a race for us, and this race does have a standard. You know what the standard is? It's God's word. And God's word is so good. It's so perfect. And if you walk this race, if you run this race according to God's perfect standard, guess what? You, you, you end your race looking at God, and he looks at you, and he says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. But the enemy's goal is to tempt us to think, I can run God's race, but under my terms and my standards. But how many of you know, if you, run a, if you run a, win a race, that's hard to say. If you win a race, <laughs> if you're the strongest lifter at a competition, but you were doping, if you were taking steroids, did you win? You didn't win. Even though you finished, it didn't count because you weren't running by the standards. But God says, hey, if you will trust my perfect standard for your life, if you will build your life on my word through pain, guess what? I'm gonna put this thing in, I'm gonna put this thing in you called character. And that means you can run your race knowing full, fully well, I'm gonna get to the end of the race. No matter what I experience, God is gonna look at my life and say, well done good and faithful servant. God wants to put character in us. The last thing God wants to put in us is hope. We are trained to hope, but the devil, the enemy wants to tempt us to fear. Tempt us to fear. I've heard somebody say that fear is faith in the opposite direction. Fear is faith in the opposite direction. So when pain shows up, the enemy would love to get you to tempt 
to tempt you to place your faith in the reality that God, he's not coming through for you. He wants you to actually put your faith in that kind of idea. When pain shows up, he wants you to put your faith in the fact that God's not for you. God's forgotten about you. God's doing this to you. And this is exactly why it's so important for you and I, New Song students, to know what God says about himself for himself from his word. Because when I'm in that pain, I need to know what God says, not what my circumstance is saying. I need to know what God says about himself, not what the pain is telling me. And you know what the Bible says? My Bible says that when I'm in pain, God will never leave me or forsake me. My Bible says that God is good and only does good. My Bible says that God is the author and the perfecter and the finisher of my faith no matter what. And so this is why I can have hope. This is why I can run my race with hope. Hope, And I want to invite the band to come up as we get ready to close. And I want to go back to the dash. Chapter one of John Tyson's book. He talks about the dash and John Tyson asks his son this powerful, this powerful question. I'm asking you this question tonight, students. He says, Nate, what will your dash be? And his son answers in the book and he says, I don't know. I guess I'm still figuring it out. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt that way before? Like, God, I, I want to run this race that you've called me to. But, like, tell me what to do. Like, what does that look like? What am I supposed to do in this race? Have you ever felt that way before, students? I remember being your age. And I remember the pressure of feeling like, man, I've got to figure out what God is calling me to do. Because when I look to my neighbor, it looks like they know what God's called them to do. When I was in high school, my brother, my little brother, he, I, he, I swear, it was so annoying. He knew exactly what God was calling him to do. And I was like, that's not fair. I wanna know what I'm called to do. Have you ever felt that way before? Sometimes when we talk about this race, what we're talking about is the calling on your life. What is God calling you to do? And, and we put a lot of pressure on figuring out what God is calling me to do. But can I tell you, I wanna shed some light on this tonight. The race God has for you has a lot less to do with what you're going to do one day. Because the reality is your calling and my calling are a lot more similar than they are different. Like my calling as a youth pastor your calling as a student, a mom's calling as a stay-at-home mom, the president, I don't care who you are. The reality is, yeah, we're all gonna have unique ways that we run our race that God is gonna give you, but the, at the end of the day, God has called all of us to run the race the exact same way. My calling is actually a lot more similar than you think to your calling. And look at this, Hebrews 12, the passage that we opened up with, it actually gives us everything that we're all called to do in this race. So you don't need to put so much pressure on your shoulders of like, God, what do you want me to do? What am I called to do in this life? I wanna give it to you right now. Are you ready for this? I wanna give you your three callings in life that you're gonna be doing and striving to do and walking with the Holy Spirit doing for the rest of your life. Look at this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside 
every weight and sin. You know what your first calling is as a believer? This is every believer's calling. It's to throw off. You know what that is? That's this word called sanctification. It's called freedom. It's called looking more like Jesus tomorrow than I did today. And you know what? If you are doing this amazing job for God, but you're not doing this, you're not running the race. God's called all believers to do this. This is your calling in life. It's to throw off. It's called sanctification, but let's keep going. Look at this. It says that the sin that clings so closely, you're supposed to get rid of it and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Verse two, looking to Jesus. Here's your second thing that you're called to. Look up. What is this? This is abiding with Jesus. This is having a real relationship with Jesus, not just going to church, not just doing the things, but knowing God. We're called to look up. And if you are getting sanctified and doing all these holy things, but you're not looking up, you're not running your race. Because we're called to throw off and we're called to look up. But look at this, this is the last thing that every believer is called to do. How many times in this passage did it say, let us? Let us. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, hey, you run your race or watch me run my race. No, he says, let us run the race. Here's the final thing we're all called to do. We're called to run with. What is that? That is community. You know, if you are abiding with Jesus and you're being sanctified, but you don't have community, you're not running your race. You're missing out on the life God has called you to. But if you are throwing off, if you are looking up, and if you are running with, guess what? You are living the life that God has called you to. You are living the abundant life that Jesus called you to. And it's gonna look different than me, but at the end of the day, our callings are way more similar than they are different. And so here's my encouragement to you New Song students. How are you gonna run this race? How are you gonna run this race? And my encouragement to you is don't waste it because the Holy Spirit has so much good for you. And if you will throw off, if you will look up and if you will run with, God will take you places that you could have never imagined. And there will be pain, there will be trials, but you can walk through every single one knowing I can rejoice because my God has something good for me through this. Amen. I wanna invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes tonight.